Excuse me. 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 Everybody, and welcome to Morgan Dorks. This is a bi-weekly Daria podcast where we take an in-depth look at our favorite animated teenage misanthrope episode by episode. I'm Rob Press. And I'm Nissa Lee. And today we are looking at season three, episode 11, The Lawndale File, in which shady governmental types come to Lawndale High and paranoia begins to rule the day with the talk of atomic communists from Mars and ruthless alien sex goddesses. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) This episode aired on August 4th, 1999, and it was written by Peter Elwell. This is Elwell's second credited episode, the first being the musical which he co-wrote the musical as you almost certainly remember currently sits dead last in our rankings and it's all my fault (laughs) (laughs) we laugh but it is uh anyway (laughs) i i i accept the blame (laughs) uh i I will say right off the top, and I don't I don't want to take too much away from our discussion later on down the line. I remembered this being a much shittier episode than it was. <laughs> um interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh anyway, do we want to get into our beat by beat? Yes, yes, we do. So we are dropped straight into the weirdness with this one. Uh, Our episode opens in the Lawndale High Auditorium, where everybody's getting ready to see an assembly. But first, Mrs. Lee introduces two shadowy government agent types, a man and a woman. Uh, Dark suits, earpieces, indoor sunglasses, you know the deal. Uh, They've apparently been getting, quote, disturbing reports from Lawndale High, and they're hoping for everybody's cooperation. They ask the student body to keep an eye out for, quote, People who are different. And that's about all they have to say. Cool. Good talk. Um, <laughs> later at the Lane residence, Daria and Jane are watching Six Sad World, which happens to be about aliens walking among us. Nirvana's heart shaped box plays in the background. Jane turns the TV off and goes off on something of a tangent about how aliens wouldn't walk among us, but rather rely on controlling us through neck implants or something similar. All of this is backed by a weirdly cheerful guitar riff coming from downstairs. It's Trent, and he's been at it for days. Yeah, it does really drop us into the weird, doesn't it? <laughs> it totally does. And I I don't know. We we have talked plenty about those episodes that start like practically in media res, you know, where uh the exposition and everything happens in the span of like a minute and a half. Um this is literally the first like 20 seconds of the show. Uh, you know, we're introduced to the, this bizarre, uh, this bizarre aspect of the episode. Uh, and, and, you know, we're already seeding the paranoia that's going to run through the entirety, uh, of this thing. And it just feels weird. I mean, 
with the agents, they're calling a school assembly. Like, just who are these people looking for? Like, what is their... Like, what is their angle here for this kind of procedure? <laughs> so they're not even, that's the thing is like, they're not even, they didn't call the assembly. The assembly is for like, they're doing like a pep rally dance kind of thing. I forget what the exact phrasing was. And these two are just kind of like, in the beginning of it, like, oh, hey, by the way, we had something to announce to you guys before our regularly scheduled show. And, and yeah, I don't, I don't understand the procedure. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if you are trying to root out someone who is acting suspiciously, you get up in front of the school <laughs> and you tell everybody to keep an eye out. Yeah. It just, it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> someone who is different. Also, speaking of different, I don't, I don't know about you and I, I'm having a really hard time pinpointing it exactly, but I feel like the dialogue, especially with Jane, is different in this episode. I I I don't know if I was having a hard time following Jane in the assembly and afterwards, or maybe it was just too late. I, I don't know. <laughs> but but I I feel like there's something a little different about the flow of conversation, you know, the cadence or whatever in, in this, in this episode. Thoughts? It's really, (laughs) it's really, really interesting that you say that because when I was doing the beat by beat for this episode, I had to, I had to keep going back and making sure that I was like getting the basics right because the whole thing felt really disjointed and writing it out just didn't like, it was difficult to piece it all, you know, together in a way that made sense, you know, as something that you would read <laughs> as like a sequential telling of events. Like like the pieces are there and they're just being smashed together like, you know, a, a toddler with his toys. <laughs> These pieces <laughs> to don't extent. really fit, but you know, we're going to make them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to some extent, like it does, it feels kind of disjointed and and weird. There is a weird feel to this episode as a whole, and I mean, I guess we can probably debate a little bit later as to whether like that might be a little bit on purpose or if it's just kind of a happy accident, mm. given like the mm-hmm. nature of this episode. But it, it, there's there's a lot going on, and I mean, we'll we'll get into it in a little bit, but. Uh, this episode did catch me by surprise a few times, like in a good way, uh, in terms of actually kind of subverting itself, or at least subverting my expectations of it. I don't know. It, it you are not at all wrong. It feels weird. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's the very long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for getting there. <laughs> uh, there are certain. And and this is not the only time we're going to notice it, but there are certain lines in in this episode that definitely feel differently in a post nine eleven world. Um, because, I mean, you know, as as we mentioned at the top, you know, this episode aired in in August of nineteen ninety nine, uh, so you were you know two years and a month out from uh, from September eleventh, but. Uh, you know, lines like we're on the lookout for you know people who are different you know, shady government types showing up, just trying to root out people who look and act like us, but aren't necessarily us. Like, 
don't know. It, it all feels a little, it feels a little weird. It is very much in line with, and we'll definitely get into this in, in the cultural context. It's, it's very much in line with the sci-fi tropes that this episode is playing against. But you know, some a lot of those sci-fi tropes ended up having to morph a little bit, or or uh, alter themselves, or or just sort of get interpreted a little bit differently in light. They've of- They've evolved. They've evolved with the times. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, we're we're gonna have to keep an eye out for that. Yes. Of of all the weird things that uh, happen in in these two scenes, though, the hardest I I did have a very hard time believing that when Jane and Daria are watching Six Sad World, that Jane would actually turn off Six Sad World <laughs> to debunk the whole alien thing. <laughs> like of all of the things, so I I was having trouble believing that. I'm like, this is weird. Like the lady doth protest too much. Methinks, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> yeah, like she would dedicate that kind of serious attention. <laughs> like, yeah, it doesn't feel like Jane, right? <laughs> right. You need to listen to this. <laughs> this is important. They would invade us through neck implants. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Jane. Gonna look yeah. out for you now. <laughs> Seriously, Jesus. Like, why isn't she more of a suspect in, in Daria's eyes? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, maybe oh, getting ahead man. of ourselves there. <laughs> ever, ever so slightly, but um, if there's anything we are guilty of, at least 15 or 20 times an episode... <laughs> Yes. It's getting ahead yes. of ourselves. Um, breakfast at the Morgendorfer house the following morning has Helen and Jake trying way, way too hard to engage with Daria, who calls them out on it. Uh, Helen finally breaks through a little bit and asks if, asks if Daria has seen anything interesting on TV. Uh, Daria mentions the Six Sad World episode about aliens walking among us, and Helen says, of course, many of them can't afford a car. Which takes Daria by surprise, but, but before she can inquire further, the conversation is interrupted by the phone ringing. Jake keeps the momentum up by mentioning that we were all aliens at one point or another, and Daria is in pure what-the-fuck mode when Quinn rolls up to the kitchen table wearing her outfit from Quinn the Brain uh, with the black turtleneck, and she seems nervous, and she keeps scratching at her neck. Slow, creeping horror rises in Daria as she remembers Jane's point about alien neck implants, and she starts connecting the dots between that and the weirdness of the current conversation. Throw Your Set in the Air by Cypress Hill plays as her paranoia rises. She ditches breakfast and makes a beeline for the school. It's only after she leaves that we're clued into Helen and Jake believing the conversation to be about immigrants as opposed to extraterrestrials. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. So this right here was the... I was talking uh, just a couple minutes ago about how this episode kind of subverted my expectations for it uh, a couple times. And this was definitely one of those instances because this initial setup is very much a, it feels very much like it's going to be one of those failure to communicate, you know, a bunch of tension comes out of nowhere because characters don't just like sit down and actually talk to one another to understand what the hell each of them are talking about. Or, or it feels like, you know, the, the elephant in the room of, 
hey, we as the audience know that <laughs> these folks are talking about aliens as in immigrants, and these folks are talking about aliens as in extraterrestrials, but it's never going to get acknowledged in the show because the show doesn't want to tip its hand because that's part of setting up the joke. Um, and I was kind of gearing up for all of that, and some of that is is my low expectations of this episode. And instead, you know, we got the conversation between Helen and Jake talking about like, you know, I, I, what the hell are they teaching about immigration at that school and stuff like that? I don't know. I, I appreciated that. It immediately made me expect a little bit more out of this episode than what I thought we were getting initially. Honestly, I think that if they did not have that you know, follow-up conversation with Helen and Jake about immigration that it would have been chaos. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, they needed, I don't know, the little bow, you know, to tie at the end of of that scene. Otherwise, uh, yeah, otherwise it would just all descend into chaos. and, And this is a good beat, you know? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm speaking a, a bit gibberish here, which is appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're making sense. It, it's okay. In an episode that's already kind of all over the place, it would add another layer of, of yes. all over the placeness. Yeah. So it, it's like, okay, here is this definitive, we could be talking about immigrants in our discussion of aliens. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes, this is a trope that sci-fi uses, we're going to tip our hat to it, you know? Right. And and I appreciate calling it out. You know, I, I appreciate the, there's a certain gutsiness to that <laughs> when, uh, when you're talking about the, you know, the actual writing of the thing, because there, there is an element of, it's not quite, it's not breaking the fourth wall, but there is an element of like, hey, no, I acknowledge I'm in on the joke with you. <laughs> dear viewer, mm-hmm. and yes. we're going to go different places. I don't know. I appreciate that. The rest of the episode is is not like crazy subversive or anything like that. You know, it, it's not a, it's not a truly legendary episode of television or anything, but it's, it's better than it should be <laughs> probably. Um, <laughs> I will say though, especially this early on, does Daria's paranoia seem like wildly out of place here? Oh boy. Yeah. I have a hard time believing she'd be this easily spooked especially about something like this outlandish. Uh, there's a, there's like a certain suspension of disbelief that you're being asked to engage in here. Yeah, I think that what's happening is this like strange synchronicity, you know, all these coincidences colliding. <laughs> and, you know, because we're watching a television show, we know that this is orchestrated. So it's a little hard for us to, because these things are so disparate and convenient, we we might have a hard time believing that they would all come together in this situation. And yeah, then there's the point that like Daria as a character may not be the type of person to fall into that trap so easily. But um. I don't know. You know, Daria's paranoia reminds me of that R.L. Stein book, that Goosebumps book called The Girl Who Cried Monster. <laughs> I like I immediately thought of this when she was like 
you know, started suspecting her sister. Um, <laughs> so, so in this book, which I read like so long ago, but it still stuck with me. Um, it still sticks with me. A girl discovers that a librarian, that her librarian in, in the school is a monster. And spoiler alert, at the end of the book, we find out that her parents and she and her brother are also monsters. She's just too young. You know, she doesn't like, you know, have all the, the scary things that the monster has. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> like somehow this book has, has stuck with me for so long. This idea that like people, the people that we know are just completely different creatures when we turn our backs, you know, it's like horrifying <laughs> and fascinating. And, and, and I think this is kind of what's going on with Daria. Like, it's a really kind of like existential quandary you know, that is would be kind of cool for a mind like her to a mind like hers to <laughs> contemplate, you know? <laughs> yeah. So first of all, hell yes to you for being the one who brings goosebumps to Morgan Dorks. <laughs> it was bound to happen eventually. Yeah, it absolutely was. Uh, and secondly, and this is, We'll get into it in our in our cultural context, uh, where a huge part of sci-fi, uh, and in fact, maybe the main thing about sci-fi is the 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 fear of the other, and this idea that something isn't quite what it seems to be uh, is a huge part of that, and and it has its roots in in you know the classic forties and fifties. Uh, communist paranoia, which we'll actually get to see plenty of throughout this episode, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, funnily enough. But it's it's all kind of rooted in that idea of, hey, this person looks like me and walks like me and talks like me, but they're not me. They're something very different and something that wants to destroy me. And there's no way for me to know for sure uh, who is in that and who is not in that. Right. What's so cool about uh, about the the Goosebumps book is that like the girl ended is up everything. It's a Goosebumps book. <laughs> you know, so, so like the girl ended up being a monster, like, and, and you know, that's the trick that's played on the audience. But this idea that, that like you too are the alien, you too are the thing that is other is something that we also see in the episode. So that's, yeah. Nice little <laughs> tie-in. <laughs> Good job, me. <laughs> and off we go to Lawndale High, where Daria is talking to Jane about the possibility that Quinn has been commandeered by an alien menace. Jane notes that Kevin's always wearing something around his neck as well, which we don't get much time to focus on before Mr. O'Neill wanders up and butts in on the alien conversation. He totally fucking scoops this week's cultural context by talking about the X-Files and how a whole lot of science fiction is based on Cold War paranoia, how you're an alien really meant you're a communist, that sort of thing. Two of the three J's wander by at the moment. Mr. O'Neill is saying the words, you're a communist and you're an alien to Daria and Jane, respectively. Uh, and that's totes not going to come up later. <laughs> Over at Quinn's locker, the rest of the fashion club is asking her about her strange outfit. She swears she'll explain it momentarily, but the conversation is interrupted by the two Jays, who relay Mr. O'Neill's overheard accusations to the entirety of the fashion club. Word spreads extremely quickly, and pretty soon the entirety of the B-plot gang, the fashion club, Kevin, Brittany, Mac, and Upchuck, is talking about Daria and Jane, atomic communists from Mars. 
Ari and Jane starting their walk home are just musing about what a weird day it has been when out of nowhere, the FBI agents from the beginning of the episode walk Mr. DiMartino out in handcuffs. So yeah, the day is not going to be getting any less weird. And that's the end of act one. Atomic communists from Mars is an excellent band name and Trent should take it. (laughs) There's There's something very, very pleasant about that series of words. Atomic communists. Atomic communists. It's awesome. It's that internal rhyme, right? Mm. <laughs> we've got we've got a bit of assonance going on. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of consonance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so this was, first of all, not at all kidding when I say that Mr. O'Neill scooped the shit out of us with that X-Files Cold War aliens or communists mm-hmm. thing. As this episode was unfolding, I was sitting there thinking like, oh, this is going to be such a clever thing to talk about. And boy, what a fun direction to take this in. And then the episode goes and takes it in that direction. So, so I'm just like, ah, damn it. <laughs> that said, I appreciate that you know this is, this is the second example of this episode kind of subverting my expectations. We started getting this these Cold War parallels, these paranoia things, the science fiction tropes and all that. And you know, instead of, it's kind of like, if you're watching a zombie movie and they actually call the zombies zombies and they don't act like zombies are just a totally foreign concept that nobody's ever heard of whatsoever in this <laughs> world. They're like, Oh no, they're zombies. We have to hit, destroy the brain. <laughs> That's kind of what it's like where like, this is the show acknowledging that the tropes it's playing on are in fact tropes and things that exist in this world. Yes. There's a level of cleverness to that that I was not expecting from this episode, and you know, generally don't expect from Daria. Like it's it's a very well written show, but they don't really play in the space like this very often, and I really appreciate it. It's satisfying in the way that it's kind of like the analysis in a pop culture academic paper, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah, totally. (laughs) I see what you mean. (laughs) Those layers are there, man. (laughs) And thank you for pointing them out. (laughs) Thank you for for acknowledging that there's value in the media that I consume. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get that very often because I watch trash. (laughs) (laughs) But we're lifting it up now. (laughs) Uh, not a not a whole lot else to say about that like this is where this is where you really start to see that mob mentality almost start to kick in and and that's pretty interesting to watch it's kind of funny how quickly things devolve i also want to point out that the dialogue between kevin and mac is absolutely fantastic uh from (laughs) kevin's vince lombardi did not go to hell man (laughs) to Mac and his absolutely deflated, yeah, I heard it too, in response to the conversation that the fashion club was having. It's all, it's, it's well written. Yes. Again, yeah. it's, it still feels weird, but it's being done well. Um, the pace at which this all kind of um, devolves, as you, as you said, reminds me of Cafe Disaffecto. Yes. <laughs> so. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Another amazing episode of television. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, well. (laughs) (laughs) Act two opens in the Morgendorfer house. Uh, Daria wanders by Quinn's room and overhears the fashion club talking about how glad they are Quinn's still, quote, one of them. They wrap the conversation up very, very quickly once they realize Daria is listening. 
In a phone call with Jane soon thereafter, Daria expresses her concern, and Jane suggests Daria is being overly paranoid, then immediately follows it with a request for Daria to head over to the Lane residence. Her excuse? Trent's song is getting more cheerful, and it's making her nervous. They agree not to tell Helen or Jake where Daria's going, which gets awkward when Jake stops Daria on the way out the door. She suggests she's going for a power walk, which freaks Jake out. If Daria is turning wholesome and Quinn's becoming a beatnik, then what the hell is going on? He takes these concerns to Helen, who downplays them as much as she can. Unfortunately, Quinn drops in to destroy all of that work by noting Mr. O'Neill that <laughs> Mr. O'Neill said Daria is a quote atomic communist, and Mr. DiMartino got let off in handcuffs. Helen is baffled. Jake resumes panicking. You know, I just realized while you were reading this that when the fashion club is grateful that Quinn is still one of them. I I don't know if it's intentional, but it reminded me of the movie Freaks it's, from 1932. It's absolutely intentional. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one of us. One of yeah, us. <laughs> totally. So, yeah. <laughs> so there's that, you know, um, again, an implication that Quinn is a freak to some extent. <laughs> She's got them neck implants. Yeah. But by the way, that that movie is um, directed by Todd Browning, and it's a 1932 film. Check it out. <laughs> it's it's worth a watch. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. I speaking of Quinn, I actually I love the little back and forth with Quinn at the very end of this bit, where she like keeps popping back in to be like, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, and just like making the situation worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And it ends with her saying like, oh, and Mr. DiMartino was let off in handcuffs. Toodaloo. (laughs) You know, I find it very amusing that Helen believes that Mr. DiMartino is the reliable authority of whatever is going on at the school of all people. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Helen Helen thinks Mr. O'Neill has a screw loose and (laughs) and she thinks Mr. DiMartino is in control of everything. Well, she's right about the screw being loose. <laughs> yes. As we've established, Mr. O'Neill has killed people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's, he's luring people into his car. So <laughs> maybe want to stay away from him. Out on her walk, Power Man 5000's Tokyo Vigilante Number 1 is playing in the background, uh, and an on-edge Daria hears a rustling in the bushes. She does her best not to think too much about it and continue walking. After she's gone, the rustling in the bushes is revealed to be Kevin and Brittany, who have decided to track Daria because they believe she's a communist. Uh, It turns out they aren't alone, though, because they're almost immediately joined by Upchuck, Mac, Jody, and Mr. O'Neill, all of whom are out separately doing the same damn thing in the middle of the woods. Daria gets to Jane's door, and from her doorway, Jane spots a bright, glowing mass in the woods with a bunch of beams coming out of it. It is, of course, our intrepid group of communist hunters who realize how silly they're being and shut off their flashlights just in time for Daria and Jane to see the lights go out, and for Jane to assume they might have witnessed a UFO going back into hiding. Daria talks Jane down while the assembled communist hunters of the Lawndale Wood actually talk things out a bit. Unfortunately, it doesn't go very well as Mr. O'Neill's attempts to put together an assembly to promote understanding only convince Kevin that Mr. O'Neill is, quote, one of them. Although Kevin still isn't entirely sure who they are. Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that exchange between Kevin and Brittany is a pithy way to encapsulate everything that's going on in this episode, right? 
who are the agents looking for? Who are the aliens? Are they immigrants? <laughs> Little green men? High school fashion aficionados? I, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> Everyone's confused. Yeah, it's that it is that, again, that trope of fear of the other. And one of the things about the other is that you have no idea who the other really are. Mm -hmm. And that's like the root of your fear of them is not understanding that. And so Kevin's like, oh, he's one of them. Okay. Who, who, one of who, (laughs) I don't know. I thought you knew. Ah, shit. Like it's kind of the beauty of Kevin is that he can actually admit that he doesn't know. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely Kevin. Oh, Kevin. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of it's kind of rare anymore that we really get to see so much of the B plot gang, uh, and you know, on top of that, it's pretty rare that we see them this fleshed out. You know, a lot of the time we kind of go to them for like one-off jokes or something like that, and there is a fair amount of that here. But each of them are kind of like adding their own thing to the frenzied feel of this episode. And it makes it like a little bit easier to buy into the weirdness of it because we don't have time to settle in with anything. Like it's just rapid fire, one crazy thing after another, after another, after another. And it just gives a frantic pace that this thing kind of needs if it's going to work. And I think that maybe that's why some of the stuff with Daria and Jane is a little bit harder to swallow because those are the moments where we're like just kind of standing still and being asked to really accept everything. Yeah, yeah, you know, you bring up a good point. A lot of uh, a lot of the episodes of Daria that we see are focused on a primary plot line um and sometimes and then we have, you know, the secondary or the B plot, but it's it plays a much more minor role and and so maybe our brains are just having a hard time juggling all the things that are happening here. <laughs> yeah. It is quite alien to us. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, <laughs> Upchuck being up in a tree kind of kills me. <laughs> just something about that being his default. Like, I'm hunting for aliens. I'm going to climb this tree. And I'm going to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I would say that maybe he's he's working on getting beamed up. Like, you know, he he's like, well, I'm up in this tree. May as well, you know, pick me up a little more. Um, but, <laughs> but let's face it. Like, he's probably just there for a chance to peek down women's shirts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It reminds me of George McFly in Back to the Future who like – Climbs up into a tree in the middle of the street. <laughs> yeah. And a not very heavily wooded tree. Like, it's very easy to see this guy just chilling in a tree with some binoculars right outside a girl's house. Yeah. Um, not at all the least questionable thing in Back to the Future, but that's that's another podcast entirely. Oh, totally. I'm really surprised it's taken you this long to... <laughs> <laughs> to really talk about Back to the Future. Oh, that'll be that's our next series after Morgan Dorks wraps up. We're after our sixty-seven episodes of Morgan Dorks wrap up. We're going to do another sixty episodes on Back to the Future. We'll bring Jeff in on that one. <laughs> <laughs> in Jane's room, Daria agrees that whatever Trent's working on is weirdly happy. They move on to Jane's theory about why everything is so fully bonkers right now. Jane has it like diagrammed out and everything, but they're forced to drop the discussion when Trent stops playing and comes up to Jane's room. 
When confronted about the song he's working on, he acts extremely shifty about it and promptly vacates, leaving Daria and Jane to be even more weirded out than they were before. Daria denies it, but then the doorbell rings and she nearly goes through the roof. Uh, The duo make their way down to the front door and open it cautiously to reveal... Motherfucking Artie! And he's delivering a pizza! And that Power Man 5000 song is playing again. What's up, Artie? It's been like three seasons. And that's the end of Act 2. For those of you who don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So if you don't remember, in the past, Artie has appeared on Six Sad World as a UFO nut. So it's quite appropriate that he's showing up now. Hell yeah. We haven't seen Artie since, I believe, the Esteemsters. Yes. Yeah. It's just being exposed to Artie's theories is just a whole new level here. (laughs) (laughs) He's really got something about skin, doesn't he? (laughs) Oh, he definitely does. (laughs) Which we get... mm. Let's not talk about it. (laughs) Well, yeah, let's let's not talk about the, the specific skin stuff, but there is a... We'll talk about it a little bit later. There's something to be said for for the conspiracy nut stuff and how it plays in with with sci-fi tropes and everything, especially in the 90s, but we will definitely get to that. We are getting a whole lot of meeps out of Daria this season, and I don't know if you picked up on that. Oh, I totally Yeah. I love the meeps. It's it's very good. (laughs) uh, And I guess one other thing I'll note here is I, you know- I watched Jane's presentation. I, I followed her her, her uh, diagram. Her, her, yeah, her diagram, her visual instruction, and I still can't tell you whether she thinks aliens are behind everything or not. Yeah, yeah. I, I think really that's the, the real loose screw in this episode. What the fuck is up with Jane? <laughs> she's <laughs> she's usually so reliable. She is the rock. But in this episode, she, she's just confusing me. The stick figure <laughs> diagram that's so weird on several levels. <laughs> uh, so Act 3 opens with Artie trying to hurry Jane and Daria up with the pizza cache. Uh, when Daria asks if he happened to have seen any UFOs on the way over, Artie just sort of invites himself in and slams the door behind him and begins spinning a yarn about how the aliens experiment on you and replace your skin. He proceeds to spend the next hour or two with Power Man 5000 still playing in the background, uh, telling Jane, yeah, telling Jane, Daria, and eventually Trent all about the alien menace. And he probably gets fired from his pizza delivery job by Beeper. Um, meanwhile, back at the Morgendorfers, Jake's freaking out about how he and Helen came became the very thing they marched against. Uh, for more information on this, check out our episode on That Was Then, This Is Dumb. Uh, Daria returns from her power walk. Uh, Jake loses it on her for a bit, and she wanders upstairs confused, while Helen suggests that maybe Jake should stay off the coffee. So I guess that the appearance of Artie is is really just the natural progression of this history of sci-fi and alien paranoia, right? You know, you, you've got... <laughs> you've got the fear of immigrants and the fear of communists and it's all conveyed in this fiction and now you have people who are just nuts about it 
<laughs> and uh, a bit delusional and obsessed. <laughs> All the the conspiracy nut, you know, is is a vaunted trope of the of the sci-fi genre. You know the. The X-Files, which we've already talked about and we'll talk about more. Um, the X-Files had the lone gunman, which was that those three guys who peddled very strongly in, in uh, conspiracy theories. And there's a rationale behind conspiracy theories even existing, which is it's a way for people to justify, explain, provide a rationale for I'll give an example. Uh, there's a there's a great uh, hardcore history podcast by Dan Carlin, uh, and he talks about how one of the reasons behind people being so obsessed over Lee Harvey Oswald couldn't possibly have killed JFK. Like he couldn't have possibly been acting alone. It couldn't have possibly just been hey, this one guy who was you know kind of a nut job and happened to be a pretty good shot took out the leader of the free world. You know, one day down in Texas. And it comes down to people having a hard time believing that just one person acting on their own, completely independent of like shady government entities or any larger power, could hold so much influence over everything. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you know, Lee Harvey Oswald changed the world that day. Like he he did a terrible, despicable thing. He he fucking murdered a man, but uh, but he changed the world all by his lonesome sitting up there in a library. Or in a book depository, sorry. Uh, and and people have a tough time wrapping their mind around that. So you end up with you know attempted justifications of like, well, no, you know, something that earth shattering couldn't have come from some guy just acting on his own. That had to come from someplace higher and someplace uh, more inscrutable and and someplace uh, a little shadier that that I can't possibly have access to, you know, or anything like that. You know, and, and it's, you know, we saw the same thing come up around 9-11. You know, how many conspiracy mm-hmm. theories are there about what happened on 9-11? And really it comes down to, hey, the nearly 20 guys got together and, and changed the entire world in the span of one morning. And we have a tough time wrapping our minds around that, uh, especially in the 90s when it was this it was this period between the end of the cold and I'm, I'm almost like word for word going to say this in the cultural context, but like it was this period between the end of the cold war and pre nine 11, where we had these like eight years to just really explore the space and, and really enjoy our crazy, you know, crazy destructive movies and, and our crazy sci-fi conspiracy plots and stuff. And we could do it without, without feeling like it had real world significance <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and and it led to some really crazy and interesting shit like the X Files. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, I, I just totally no, went no. off the rails for like fifteen minutes there. But wait, but what you were saying reminds me that the way that one of the characters is is rationalizing what's going on around her, Jane is she goes to her canvas and she starts painting. And this is, you know, in like the next scene or two, but she basically just paints the, the scene of the lights coming out of the woods. And, and so this is, this is the way that she is processing the situation. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't jump to the arty conspiracy theory level 
<laughs> but she's piecing it together, <laughs> you know? She's making art of it in the same way that the X-Files and, I don't know, Independence Day or whatever are, you know. Men in Black, go ahead. Yeah, Men in <laughs> you, you Black, men hey. In black. <laughs> I did want to say Men in Black. Um, how, like, they that is art that is processing you know, some ideas that are hard to process, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to talk a little bit about how Jake's ideology here seems a little confused, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure it's worth really touching on a whole lot. I mean, I when I first listened to what he was saying, I I was a little confused as well. But I think that's because the direction that that interpretation of aliens has has gone is it's just it's very different from what the rest of the plot is is following you know right yeah it's anyway, weird we're probably cut that <laughs> no 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 i th- i think it's it's worth mentioning like it, it, because jake is much like the rest of the B plot gang is actually like surprisingly fleshed out relative to what they normally are. Uh, Jake here gets Jake gets a little bit more than he usually gets, and we're I think I feel like we're we're shorting him a little bit here, but also like I'm not sure there's a whole lot to to discuss in terms of you know where he goes this episode. He's being an awesome dad in the first scene. Um, That's a good the point. Breakfast scene. He's being awesome. Awesome dad and partner. <laughs> <laughs> where where is this Jake most of the time? Yeah. And then he like Although immediately the, falls the, asleep again. <laughs> exactly what I was about to say. And then immediately at the end of that scene, just boom, out. <laughs> yep. Switch on, switch off. <laughs> at Lawndale High, everybody's gathered out front for a rally for tolerance and understanding, which oy. Uh, where Kevin's mm-hmm. ranting against communists for not being team players. Kevin, uh, Mr. O'Neill bedecked in full Karl Marx regalia notes that communists are in fact hella team players and starts into a one-man show about Marx. He's interrupted by Mr. DiMartino, who angrily demands that someone fess up to telling the government he was an illegal alien. Ms. Barch basically admits to it, which we kind of just gloss over as Holla Holla by Ja Rule starts playing. Upchuck immediately shifts the focus onto the aliens among us, Daria and Jane, proceed to shift the focus onto the real aliens, Kevin and Brittany, who point out that Mr. O'Neill tipped them off to Daria and Jane. Mr. O'Neill walks that back quite a bit, and reason is just beginning to prevail when Jane points out there are, in fact, four people acting very oddly, the Fashion Club, who are all now fully decked out in beatnik attire. Turns out Quinn got a neck zit, hence the turtleneck... And the fashion club was showing solidarity, which means all of it. The government agents, the alien talk, the communist talk, Mr. DiMartino being let out in handcuffs, the fashion club wearing weird clothing. It was all just a bunch of paranoia that got out of hand. Back of the lane residence, Jane's painting, Daria's reading, and the TV starts playing Trent's happy song. Turns out it was a jingle he was working on for a local car dealership because he sold the hell out. We're going to go ahead and play that jingle because it might actually be, aside from their cover of I've Been Working on the Railroad from last week, this might actually be the best piece of music that Trent plays. Hey, it's Trent's hell music. So that's why he was acting strange. He was writing a jingle. If you don't have a car or your present car sucks, 
go to Happy Herb with a few thousand bucks. Then you can drive here, you can drive there. Drive where you want, Happy Herb don't care. It won't make you better, smarter, that's true. But you can drive around when there's nothing else to do. So go buy a car, buy a damn car. Hit the road to nowhere in your Happy Herb car. I'm Happy Herb and I sell cars, so come on down. He sounds a bit like Bob Dylan. (laughs) He does, but like good Dylan. Trent's in the middle of fessing up when the trio spot Artie on the TV. He's being interviewed by Six Sad World, talking about his experience with alien abduction. He accuses two alien love goddesses, who look suspiciously like Jane and Daria, of abducting him and costing him his job. Daria wonders if they should be upset. Jane thinks the television reenactments uniforms look pretty good. And we roll credits to Outer Space Girls by the Spice Girls. So um, I am just realizing the whole communist uh, line of interpretation actually introduced itself in that breakfast scene when Quinn comes in in the beatnik attire. Yep. What? <laughs> how did I not how did I not think of that before? <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are not connecting the dots, you know, McCarthyism 50s <laughs> beatniks 50s (laughs) and beatniks very closely associated with communists (laughs) yes yeah basically if you were if you were in anything other than your anything other than your sunday best at any point (laughs) for any spare five minutes in the 1950s you were a communist (laughs) (laughs) i will say though when um i think it's uh when jane points out that the fashion club is acting weirdly and I think it's Tiffany goes to say like, no, no, the reason, the reason we're all dressed like this. And Quinn says, don't say it, let them kill us. <laughs> uh, speaking of outfits, I am totally on board with Mr. O'Neill's uh, Mark's outfit. It's very good. Oh yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> it's got the fake beard and everything. It's perfect. And as I noted, we really do just kind of gloss over it, but Ms. Barch has like yet again terrorized Mr. DiMartino. <laughs> this is like the fourth time she's gone after the guy, and that's included like at least two instances of direct physical assault. Yeah, yeah. She's really um <laughs> she's really targeted. <laughs> but I'm but I'm also like really still confused about the way the agents appeared in at the school because you know, if Miss Barch informed on Mr. DiMartino, then what is with the whole school assembly, you know, with the government agents? And wouldn't they have just come in and taken him away? Well, come on, guys. <laughs> you would think so, right? Yeah. This goes back, yeah, this goes back to what you've been saying from the beginning. Like, what the hell is the plan here? And, like, it would have maybe made more sense if she had informed on him as being some kind of communist spy. (laughs) Whereas like Mr. O'Neill seems to be the real, like, you know, communist sympathetic, how would you say it? Um, (laughs) Sympathizer. Sympathizer. Yes. There you go. (laughs) The real communist sympathizer. Yeah. The pieces aren't fitting for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
you did note here that Jane's the painting that Jane is working on uh, in this last uh-huh. scene is a recreation yes. of those like the UFO lights in the woods. And that's and that's what I was was talking about earlier. Um, I just think that the painting is awesome, but you know now realizing. <laughs> It's her working through her shit. <laughs> uh, so it is super hard to spot. But in that same scene, uh, Daria is reading The War of the Worlds, which oh, was hey. the HG, yeah, H.G. Wells novel about alien invaders. Um, it's also worth noting that War of the Worlds was turned into a 1938 radio drama by Orson Welles and broadcast to an unsuspecting audience of radio listeners, some of whom believed it to be real. Caused a little bit of panic. Just a, little a little bit, bit, yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently, that's apparently like the the actual amount of panic it caused was relatively overblown. But there are stories of like people in Grover's Mills, which is or Grover's Mill, which is uh, where the War of the Worlds broadcast was said to be taking place. Like there was talk of people like freaking out a little bit, and and like apparently somebody shot at a water tower and. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> Yeah, just a bunch of neat little stories to come out of that. So in that in that radio drama, the aliens land in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, which is a real place. Uh, it's right outside of Princeton. It's all of a five minute drive from Plainsboro, which is where I used to live. So there's this there's this tiny little park in Grover's Mill that has a really really nice bronze monument set up to commemorate the War of the Worlds and this tiny little town's place in media history. It's pretty cool. I, this is totally random, but I have visited that monument on my honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> we were actually like traveling with friends who were visiting from out of the country, and um, that this was one of the the spots that they wanted to see, um, along with <laughs> the diner from The Sopranos. <laughs> nice, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Get that proper Jersey experience. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's just about everything for the the beat by beat aspect of this episode. Wow, we really we're like an hour into this. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to get into our cultural context? Yeah, let me take a sip of water first. <laughs> no. <laughs> we must move forward. So Rob mentioned our cultural context for this episode totally got scooped by, you know, the episode itself. And and that's the truth. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it's reflective of a well-written episode. We'll hash that out momentarily in the episode rankings. That said, uh, for better or for worse, what we have here is a 21-minute tour of Cold War tropes that touches on a little bit of everything. Alien invasions? We got it. The threat of nuclear annihilation? Check. Old school paranoia? Boy, howdy. Uh, for the unfamiliar, and at the risk of turning this into another one of those like 40-minute cultural contexts, mm-hmm. uh, the Cold War, yeah, <laughs> this, this could have gone for a while. Um, the Cold War was a 44-year period of extraordinary political tension between the United States and the Soviet Union. It grew out of the aftermath of World War II. Uh, Nuclear weapons meant humanity suddenly had the capacity to end itself, uh, meaning the stakes of the rivalry between the representative democracy of the United States of America and the communism of the Soviet Union were now existential in nature. 
This led to extraordinary paranoia in the United States, and in the 1950s, it gave rise to McCarthyism, a crusade by Senator Joseph McCarthy to root out communists in the U.S. government and other American institutions. Uh, It was baseless. uh, It was horrifying in its scope and intensity. Uh, It ruined careers, and it ruined lives. Science fiction, as we've come to know it, grew out of the paranoid atmosphere of the 1940s and 50s. It's why so much science fiction is based on our fear of the other, as we talked about earlier. 1956's Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a direct allegory for communism. Of course, the enemy is among us. Of course, they look like us and and can act like us. Of course, they want to destroy us from the inside. And those Cold War beginnings have carried through to modern science fiction. The cold, unfeeling aliens of Invasion of the Body Snatchers aren't all that far removed from the ruthlessly efficient shape-shifting agents of 1999's The Matrix. Gonna go ahead and ignore that The Matrix is more than two decades old. Maybe it's modern science fiction. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I will hear nothing to the contrary. The Lawndale file doesn't go out of its way to hide its appreciation for these tropes. Uh, It owes its name, of course, to the wildly popular sci-fi television series, The X-Files, which basically owned the 90s and paved the way for science fiction to be cool again. Total aside, X-Cops, the episode of X-Files that was written and presented like a cops episode, is up there with my favorite hours of television. Uh, It was written by Vince Gilligan, too, who would uh, later go on to bring us Breaking Bad. If you wanted to draw a comparison to a particular piece of television history for the Lawndale file, though, you might want to look no further than The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, a positively legendary episode of The Twilight Zone that aired in 1960 and perfectly encapsulated the paranoia, anti-communist sentiment, and alien invasion chicanery we see in this episode of Daria. Oh, and monsters like goosebumps. Ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) In the monsters are due on Maple Street, a normal street in a normal town is beset by a series of small, unexplainable events. As tension rises and accusations begin to fly, anger grows and violence erupts. The result? An idyllic street has descended into chaos. By the end of the episode, it's revealed that the paranoia was, to some extent, justified. There are, in fact, alien invaders. They are watching. They have a plan to take over. This was their trial run. (laughs) And now they know that they can destroy us without firing a shot. Yes. Uh, They're just going (laughs) to fuck around with the lights for a bit and let us tear ourselves apart. (laughs) The episode ends with this monologue from series and episode writer Rod Serling. Isn't enough for a sole voice of reason to exist. In this time of uncertainty, we are so sure that villains lurk around every corner that we will create them ourselves if we can't find them. For while fear may keep us vigilant, it's also fear that tears us apart. A fear that sadly exists only too often outside the Twilight Zone. (laughs) How do you like my reading? (laughs) <laughs> it's okay. I'm not good at impressions. <laughs> uh, in the Lawndale file, we see a bunch of, of silly, baseless accusations eat away at the very fabric of Lawndale in exactly the same way. And that in and of itself would be interesting enough. 
But remember, this episode aired in 1999, six years after the fall of the Soviet Union brought an end to the Cold War, and two years before the events of September 11th uh, dramatically altered the sociopolitical landscape of America basically overnight. It was an eight-year period in which movies like Mars Attacks and Independence Day and Deep Impact could portray enormously destructive alien invasions or natural disasters and rake in millions upon millions because we had an appetite for that kind of like tourist spectacle. Uh, and let's not forget Men in Black. <laughs> and Men in Black. Uh, and then 9-11 happened, and suddenly we didn't really want that sort of thing for a while. To paraphrase the brilliant Lindsay Ellis, we suddenly knew exactly what falling skyscrapers looked like, and it wasn't what the movies had shown us. And we had to sort of rebuild an appetite for that kind of thing. And you know the the nature of the discourse around the other has changed pretty significantly since you know 2001 it's it's grown far more hateful and and far more fraught with you know nationalism and and racism and and all sorts of manner of of fear and hostility and it brings a lot of things to the table that weren't there prior to 2001 you know uh, there are aspects of aspects of this episode of Daria <laughs> you know for for as for as benign as you know this 22 minute episode of television is there are aspects of this episode that you probably would not get in the modern day you know there are mm-hmm. certain lines you know certain lines we hear that you probably wouldn't hear if this episode were written in 2019 or 2020 god it's 2020 it's not 2019 anymore um time is a flat circle rob <laughs> Is a flat circle. Uh, the, Ma- <laughs> the Matrix premiered yesterday. Um, <laughs> so this is this is all just kind of stuff to keep in mind. Like it, it's science fiction gets kind of written off a lot in some cases, rightfully so, because a lot of it is you know that exploitative kind of that last glimpse we get of of Jane and Daria you know, or the, the artist depiction of Jane and Daria in like the skippy outfits because they're like these Martian sex goddesses or whatever. Like there's a lot of that littering science fiction in general, but it's not unique to science fiction and similar to every other artistic exhibition or, or artistic medium, uh, science fiction tells its share of, of incredible stories. And the fact that it as a genre is rooted so heavily in this very specific era of, of just American media and well, I say American media, but uh, the forties and fifties, you know, globally, it, it's really something else. You know, the, the fact mm-hmm. that it is so, so predicated on that stuff uh, is is just really fascinating, and that it and it leads to episodes of Daria like this one <laughs> that are really really weird, but also still pretty entertaining and kind of cleverly done. So maybe we should get to the episode rankings. Yeah, probably. On that note, you know. <laughs> on that note. All right. Um, you have any thoughts in mind? Oh boy. <laughs> I mean, maybe we should start with what you were saying that, you know, the, the episode was surprisingly good. And yeah, the more we talked about it, the more I'm like, huh, this weaves together pretty well. 
<laughs> yeah. I I guess part of me while watching it was thinking like why an episode of Daria? Like why is this audience appropriate for this story. You know, our cultural context does cover that to a certain extent, but I don't know. Sometimes I, I, I'm, I still wonder it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe is there anything else that you could, you could say that would, that would convince me that the Daria audience is the right audience for this episode? I mean, science fiction has always been pretty popular with a younger audience. That's nothing particularly new. I mean, the X-Files was extremely popular with a younger audience. And this this episode was a direct send-up of a lot of the stuff that you see in the X-Files. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, if you if you want to draw a parallel between, I think, what was it? Was it it might have been last week where we, or I guess two weeks ago, where, you know, we said, hey, this episode tried to do what the Daria Hunter did, except it did it better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I feel like you know if if you want to draw that parallel of hey, this is an episode that's trying to speak to a very specific media or set of media tropes. How well does that relate to the Daria audience? I would say you know the Daria audience probably much much is much more likely to be in tune with uh, science fiction of the day than they are with. Vietnam movies of the day. Right. They're they're much more tuned in to to this like science fiction milieu, I guess you could say, right? Yeah. Um and again, we gotta remember like the X Files, like I said earlier, like the X Files kind of made science fiction pretty damn cool again in like in the mid nineties. Uh and this is playing pretty close to that. I know. I see your point. <laughs> I guess I guess maybe maybe for me it's like the lecturing on on communism and McCarthyism, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like here's here's my moment to get on to I, I mean like Mr. O'Neill like literally gets onto his platform and and lectures, <laughs> right? And it's like this that kind of is what this episode feels like to me at some at some points, you know. <laughs> to some extent, I feel like if it if it allowed itself that kind of substance, I would be right there with you on that where like I feel as though it's not an accident that socialist, communist, alien, atomic communist, you know, Martian, like immigrant, like all of these things kind of get like tossed in interchangeably. Like when we talk mm-hmm. about the, you know, the other, like nobody is paying any attention to the labels that they're putting on any of these things. It's all just kind of being tossed out there as like, oh, hey, they're different. Um, yeah. The people and, who are different, the people who are weird. Yeah, and and I think that's I think that's a very purposeful decision. And you know, when the very first, I mean, the only character you have who's sitting there trying to be like, no, that we can't just like, you can't just throw words out and, and make them do anything you want. Like, there's a there's a reason language exists. Let me explain all of these things. You know, there's a reason you have one character doing that and he's the fuddy-duddy character and the one that Mm -hmm. basically gets like kicked off the stage when he tries to explain to everybody what the hell is actually going on. I think that's handled interestingly. I don't know if it's, if it's masterful, but, but it's, I think for, uh, for the tone of the episode, I think it's pretty well done. So around where on the list are you 
thinking, or maybe I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Is there anything in this episode that you think could have been better? <laughs> sure. Anything like, that I like falls short. Um, I mean, we've we've talked a few times now about how this feel this episode feels a little disjointed. It is not necessarily the easiest episode to follow for some reason. Like it's not complex. It's just it's weird. I don't know if it's a pacing thing or if or if the the you know if the dialogue is off. Like like you were mentioning you know early yeah, on. I do think the dialogue is a little off. It's like it's it's like they don't have the character feel down in some in some yeah. instances. But I don't. But I don't see anything as like egregious. Like if you sit there and say like, what is one thing that that really kills this episode? I really can't think of anything in particular. And the conversations that that kind of bubble up around it are pretty fascinating to me. And you can't really yeah. like those can't be the only thing that you know. You can't weight that too heavily when you try to figure out like, well, all right, well, where's that place? The episode, but it helps it a lot to me. So where are you thinking this should go on our, our episode rankings? All right. Well, let me look at our – well, let's look at Cafe Disaffecto, right? <laughs> Another episode I knew that with, was going to come up. <laughs> right? Right? Another yeah. episode yep. with communists. <laughs> Is this episode better or worse than Cafe Disaffecto? I think it's better, to be honest. I, like, think, it, I think it's better. I, I, I just think it's written better. It's – yeah, it's really yeah. good <laughs> in that respect. It is. Um, I think so. I'm looking around nine and ten, which is it happened one nut and Lane Miserab. Okay, uh, go on. I think anywhere. I think anywhere in that you know nine, ten, eleven. Uh, eleven is Cafe Disaffecto. I think anywhere in that three, I'd be okay with this episode sitting at. I think it. I think it's above Cafe Disaffecto. So eight, nine, or ten, I think, mm. are the three spots that I'm looking at. I don't know if it's better than Speed Trapped. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, all those nut jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'll say, I'll say eleven. So bumping Cafe Disaffecto yeah, down. Yeah, bumping Cafe Disaffecto, but still under Lane Miserab, and it happened one nut. Do, do you think just like the the episode that features all like all of the lanes just can't be knocked down. <laughs> <laughs> I think it it can be knocked down, um, but by this but, in particular. But by this in particular, yeah. When I it, it, it and again, I feel like this the the secondary argument that always comes in is what makes this a and you mentioned this a little bit earlier. What makes this a good episode of Daria? Versus what makes this like a fun episode of television, and I think you know this is this is a pretty damn fun episode of television. It's interesting. It's well done. It's it's more fleshed out than a lot of the episodes we get are. But you know, I feel like as episodes of Daria go, <laughs> uh, and as explorations of the Daria space go. Yeah, I think Lane Miserab does a little bit more there. I think that's fair. Yeah, and I, and it's not an insult to be number eleven. <laughs> no, no, it's not. I don't think that you shouldn't have to worry about insulting the episode. <laughs> <laughs> These are the things that I care about. Oh, to be in your brain. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah, no, I'm I'm cool with that. I mean, I th I do think that the episode is better written than Cafe Disaffecto. It's 
I don't know. I, it's a more entertaining way to tackle the whole communist thing that Cafe Disinfecto yes. does, I think. But yeah, I mean, there is there is that question that you brought up of like, you know, would Daria really be roped into this frenzy the way that she is? Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's a whole lot of fun. <laughs> but Lane Miserable like definitely definitely keeps Daria intact. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I think like this is this is one of those episodes where I think they did everything they could do with this particular premise. Like yes. I think they made the best episode of Daria that they could make with all of these pieces. <laughs> um and you know, that's to be commended. I don't know if it's you know, it's not quite a top ten episode, but it's still very good for what they were trying to do. And mm-hmm. surprisingly good compared to what I thought it was going into it. <laughs> Yeah, funny how that happens. All right, so I guess we we have that locked in at eleven. Yeah, sure. All right, so we that puts us at number eleven for the Lawndale Files. It is just under Lane Miserable at number ten, and just above Cafe Disaffecto at number twelve. Uh, and yeah, season three, man, it is really it has carved a spot out for itself. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it has. <laughs> I'll be curious to see how the averages go because. By and large, season three has been really impressive, except you have these two episodes all the way down to the bottom. <laughs> yes. Well, what's what's super interesting is that the same writer at 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 ranking 11 also wrote the episode ranking at 38 all the way at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. And what a, yeah. what a, what a one-two punch of success stories we have between, you know, that, you know, that difference this week and the difference we had between speed trapped and the big house and the new kid mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh there's other episodes that uh johnson and marcel wrote well this writer in particular is taking the chances with doing you know the very um like genre episodes right <laughs> yeah musical sci-fi <laughs> i could be wrong but i think this was I think this and the musical were the only two episodes that Elwell did. I could be wrong about that. I guess we'll see. Yeah, I guess we'll see. So, all right. We are now at almost two hours in our recording session. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So maybe let's go ahead and and wrap this thing up. Yeah, I want a snack. (laughs) (laughs) and that about wraps it up for this episode of morgan dorks uh check out our patreon you can sign up at patreon.com slash morgan dorks for a buck a month you can support this silly thing we do uh and listen to an unedited version of each podcast a few days before it airs uh I want to thank our new patrons, uh, Alexi Amos and steely dan rather which whoa that's good yeah (laughs) um thank you yeah (laughs) thank you so much uh as always, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Morgadorks, email us at Morgadorks at gmail.com, or check out our website, Morgadorks.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook. Just search for us. We'll show up. I promise. Uh, special thanks, as always, to Outpost Daria Reborn. Link is in the show notes. And as always, thank you, Nissa. Hey, Rob. Thank you. 
And thank you, listeners. We will see you again in two weeks for Season 3, Episode 12, Just Add Water, here on Morgan Dorks. Morgan Dorks.